0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Phoenix Seminary. Now I just have to say up front that I am sometimes skeptical of doctor of ministry programs. I've said that publicly, I've said that in different places, but there are a few DMin programs that I actually do recommend to people and Phoenix Seminary's program is one of them. I think doctor of ministry degrees can sometimes be shallow, sometimes in a, an attempt to be quote unquote practical. They can just not really press a pastor to think biblically and theologically in a way that I think. Personally, pastors should be, I think pastors should be theologians in their church, and I don't know that all DMIN programs do that very well, uh, but Phoenix's does. I mean, they really push their students to be uh, deep thinkers when it comes to biblical and theological studies. They have retooled their DMIN recently, and now they require courses in biblical studies, preaching, systematic theology, hermeneutics. Uh, If you need anything more, Steve Doobie, one of the best young theologians in the world, somebody who's been on this podcast and who will be on this podcast again uh, sometime soon, I'm sure, is teaching a seminar from May 16th to the 20th in the Phoenix Seminary Demon program. So if you've got Steve Duby teaching in your Demon program, that means you are really taking theology seriously. And so I commend the Phoenix Seminary Doctor of Ministry to you. You can visit them and check out more at ps.edu slash churchgrammar. That's ps, Phoenix Seminary, ps.edu slash churchgrammar. This episode is a conversation with Kyle Strobel, Kyle returns to talk about prayer, and we've talked about prayer and spiritual disciplines with him on the podcast before, but he has a new book out where it really gets into some of the deep, hard questions of prayer. Why do we pray at all? Uh, What do we do whenever we have unanswered prayer? What do we do whenever we don't feel like praying? Some of those questions, and so Kyle is a great person to think through these issues with, writes on this regularly, is really helpful. So I hope that this conversation with him will help you deepen your prayer life. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Kyle Strobel. But first, no big deal. Kyle Strobel is here. Kyle, this is, I think, your third time on the podcast, third or fourth, so you're glutton for punishment.
1: (laughs) Hey, it's good to be with you, man.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, what I decided is I'm going to invite you on once a year when I feel like (laughs) I don't love Jesus enough and I need somebody who loves Jesus more than me to to encourage me and convict me, so you're my person for that, so. I'm happy to be the thorn of your flesh. (laughs) That's right, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, All right, we're going to talk about two things today. Um, We want to talk about the second edition of Way of the Dragon or Way of the Lamb, which uh, I've said on this podcast many times and have said to you many times and will continue to say it's one of my favorite books uh, I've ever read something I give out I mean I, I give it to students like candy pretty much so uh, I'm thankful for it and uh, glad you have a second edition out and the second edition I mean among other things, uh, obviously the revelations about Jean Vanier which you and I talked about before um, is part of it but what else was there anything else in there that you were doing in terms of second edition and just some of the things you guys were thinking through. Um, not
1: really, I mean, really minor stuff. It was mostly the Vanier chapter. We, After the revelations came out, we had, we had to wrestle through how to address it in the book. And that was actually shockingly hard. I, I, I was surprised. I literally at one point had written three new chapters <laughs> and we just kind of looked at it and said, no, we need to, you know, we were really tempted to try to do too much, I think with the second one. And we didn't want to kind of hinder The book, we wanted it to keep its consistency and to kind of stay what it was. It had its own kind of logic to it that we want to maintain. And so basically what we chose to do is we chose to try to just wrestle honestly with how difficult the Vanier thing was, while also trying to kind of highlight some of our own temptations in just dealing with, you know, and this is, you know, in many ways, the story of my life has been a story of the people who have influenced me profoundly having to lose their ministries because of moral failures. Mm. And so, I, I, I've there's almost too many to count now. And so, I wanted to navigate a little bit of that and to wrestle through it. Obviously, it's a hot button topic for a lot of folks. And um, there's, I mean, I rarely meet a st- seminary student that can't name at least one person that they've revered who has turned out to be somewhat of a wolf in sheep's clothing. And yeah. so, that's that's what we're trying to do now with that chapter.
0: Yeah, I think there is something to your book though about um, in this book. You're not lionizing or idolizing anybody. You're just trying to say, hey here's some good examples of people who have made it basically. And, and then obviously Vanier wasn't one of them and, and Lord willing, there won't be any others in the future. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but even as you're saying there, there is that reality to the fact that, I mean, it's, it's in some ways impossible to know you do your best to try to, to know. And somebody with Vanier, I mean, it all happens. It aff- happened after his death. Right. I mean, it was all, it all came out after he'd already passed. You know, one of the things that was illuminating for me, I, I we kind of can kind of come up with these
1: caricatures of evil, how evil power works. Yeah. And we always talk about the ones, I mean, you know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill being a really obvious current example. It's easy to look at those and be like, well, yeah, it must all look this way. Mm-hmm. Right? And it seems really obvious that all the telltale signs. And Vanier, or I would say Robbie Zacharias is another one. Yeah. That just doesn't fit the mold. And those are hard because they they are they kind of you get blindsided to, in kind of an extra degree, I think, I mean, I, I knew both Ravi and Vanier, and I would say both were profoundly deep human beings. I've known some other people that have lost kind of well-known folks who've lost their ministry. And I'm like, yeah, they weren't, they were highly <laughs> right. superficial people who were narcissists. And it's like, yeah. neither of the, those men were that though. And so I, I think some of what it forced us to grapple with is how scripture, like, or what scripture names things to look out for And one of the things that surprised me, quite honestly, I just, I guess, i never thought about it, particularly in James, but certainly not only in James, how much, how we use our words is seen in scripture as a sign of where we come from, either from God or from the way of below. And there were some interesting things looking back on Vanier that I think a lot of people just looked over, including us, because it was easy to, because his life was so profound. And and I would say the same thing about Ravi, there were some things he did that we almost kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt. And they should have been addressed more. But we often see how we use our words as kind of minor sorts of things. They don't seem all that significant. We were surprised. If if you just spend some time meditating on James, just asking the question, how is kind of using words seen in the book of James as a sign of where you come from. And it's astounding how that's a major piece of what it means to be someone who's spiritually trustworthy.
0: Yeah. On the one hand, nothing you can do about it. And then of course there's the, uh, there's always hindsight 2020 where you're like, Oh, well now, now that I think about it, when I had lunch with the guy, he said this, this and that, and that, you know, that was uh, alarming or whatever, but at the end of the day. um, Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's hard to know. Uh, Well, maybe, maybe, moving into your new book will be helpful as we just think through spiritual disciplines and prayer and some of these kind of things uh, you mentioned that you, that we could talk about Jonathan Edwards. And I just, I have to admit to you that I just don't like Jonathan Edwards very much. And I, um, I, people want me to talk about Jonathan Edwards, but <laughs> only thing I ever, the only, my, my only thing I really ever say about Jonathan Edwards is find somebody who loves you as much as he loves rainbows and trees. You know, that, that's, you know, his, uh, his, his, uh, his panentheism and his, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, I just love to troll all of that, but you know, I I respect you too much to do that except I just did it. So, (laughs) you know,
1: Oliver Crisp and I co-wrote an introduction to to Edwards where I have a whole chapter arguing, if you're going to be an Edwardsian, you have to reject all that stuff to be (laughs) faithful to Edwards thought. So. Fair point.
0: Okay. Maybe you and I can sometime talk about the Edwards we can keep then. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Future conversation. (laughs) Uh, I have a, a guy who I discipled when he was in high school, who is doing a PhD on Edwards now with uh, Reese Besant out at Ridley, where I got my PhD. Oh, that's great. I and, love, uh, Reese is a dear friend of mine. That's a oh, great he's amazing. person yeah. to do a PhD under. You know, I had introduced him to Edwards when he was in high school. <laughs> and uh, so now I make fun of Edwards and he's like, hey, it's your fault that i have done a PhD <laughs> on Edwards. So I always have to always have to wear that, uh, that shame. So- that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, okay, well, let's talk about your, your prayer book. When Prayer Becomes Real, uh, you wrote this with John Coe, who is a colleague of yours over at Talbot. Yeah maybe the most obvious and big picture question is what are you trying to do with this book? Obviously there are a lot of books on prayer and books on prayer come out all the time, Um, but there is something about the way that you approach it. That like, for me, for example, frankly, every time I see another book on spiritual discipline, sometimes I kind of roll my eyes or think, (laughs) okay, I'll just read the Puritans, you know, but, um, but there is something to the way that that you approach it in particular. I think that's really helpful. And that I think this book uh, draws out helpfully. And this one in particular, you do a lot of these kind of, big picture questions like what, what what do I do with unanswered prayer? What do I do with prayers that don't meet my expectations? So I think these are helpful issues, things I run into with students all the time. So uh, that's a that's a that's more than a, a comment than a question. But now here's the question. Uh, yeah. Big ideas of the book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, so the story of how the book came about might be helpful too in this. Like I was approached at ETS one year by a New Testament scholar who's just a longtime friend of the family. And he asked me, he's like, you know, yeah, I can ask you this. I wouldn't admit this to a lot of people, but I've always struggled with prayer. And I just, what's your go-to book? And I was like, oh, well, you really, really need to read. um. And I just stopped. And I'm like, why don't I have a go-to book on prayer? Because I actually, like to your point, I know plenty of great books on prayer, Yeah. but I wasn't sure what had given me pause. And so I actually spent a long time just sitting with that question. Like what, what don't I see out there that I think needs to be, and so when we, uh, my mentor, John Coe and I, we kind of sat with that question. And what came to us is there's three things a good book on prayer needs to do. And almost every book on prayer chooses only one of them. Some of the best ones choose two, and we couldn't think of any that do all three. So the three things is it needs to be theoretical. So you should tell me, you know, what makes Christian prayer distinctive? Like, how does the gospel shape prayer? How does, you know, I need to know some, some theoretical things to make sense of prayer. It's amazing how often books don't even address those things. But then secondly, now know, as an academic, I could just, you know, like the theoretical stuff. Cause that's interesting to me. Yeah. But a good book on prayer should actually change how I pray. <laughs> so it needs to be practical. Um, I've read plenty of good books on prayer that did nothing to my, to how I pray. And so whereas most good books on prayer do those two things The third thing we thought needed to be done is it had to be what we think of as existential. And by that, what we meant was a good book on prayer should actually narrate back to you, not only what you experience in prayer, but why you struggle with it, or maybe even why you interpret it the way you do. Everyone I know that has ever prayed has had experiences of their mind wandering in prayer. But virtually no one has ever talked about that with anyone. And we tended to kind of assume that whatever our innate interpretation is of that, I must be bad at prayer, or I'm a bad Christian, like, that must be just the case, that must be true. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to do the first two things, but we actually wanted to lead with the existential and try to address the very things that in almost no book I've ever read on prayer address. I mean, There's a handful of things I've read that do it a little bit. But it's amazing how many kind of universal experiences we have in prayer that most prayer books never bother attending to. And so mm. we really wanted to kind of lead there. We kind of thought, this is what we can bring to this, this discussion, while also trying to make it highly practical. Um, that was a real hope of ours is that that you, you put this book down and you had a vision for how your prayer
0: can actually change. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I try to do in, in my classes when I teach spiritual disciplines every, almost every semester you have this uh, first part, which is, you know, what you need to unlearn about prayer. And I feel like I'm doing that half the time, because totally in my context, it's mostly kids from, you know, every student that comes to Cedarville has to profess faith. So they all mm-hmm. say they're Christians, at least, obviously. Um, that's not always the case. And students get saved every every year here. But there's something about that sort of, you guys have heard this your whole lives, you kind of know what you think, and I've got to get you to unlearn some bad habits. So yeah. what are some of the big kind of bad habits that, that you think whether it's students or whether it's, you know, 60-year-old Christians have that they need to unlearn? One of the most obvious to me was
1: we need to have a distinctively Christian vision of prayer. And what that means is prayer isn't something we generate. It's not something we begin. It's something we enter. We are those who enter into the intercessory work of the Son and the Spirit to the Father. And that means we, in a real sense, are kind of like our, our ability to be good prayers isn't the defining feature of prayer. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> before I utter a word, all that I need prayer for has been uttered.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That doesn't leave me in silence, although maybe at times it could. Um, it, it could lead me to trust that God's words are enough. It actually leads me to pray the very things that God has prayed. And I think the, the, the thing that is surprising to folks about that and the, I'll give you the image that came up to me as I was reading, as I was writing this, I was trying to think of what's a good image of this. And the image that came to me was stereo sound. And so if I imagine God hearing our prayers in stereo, like in one ear, he hears the spirit from Romans 8 groaning with groanings too deep for words. Mm-hmm. And then I just began to think of how my prayers sound against that backdrop. <laughs> right. And I'm like, wow, my prayers sound I'm like, hey, God, things are pretty good. <laughs> you know, the, these, you know, I'm, I'm using all these, you know, savvy theological terms. I'm, you know, praying to the right person of the Trinity, you know, all these things I'm feeling good about myself. And then I just think of the, the spirit who's groaning mm-hmm. in the depth of my being. And the, of course, the parallel in that passage, Romans 8, is the creation groaning because it knows what it was created for. And I just think yeah. that the spirits praying in reality. And we are always tempted to pray in fantasy. Hmm. And to, to put an image to that, I think we, we like to send our Christian avatars to pray because we think they'll be received when God is calling us to be who we actually are in prayer, because there's no other way to be. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, for, for most of my students, one of the interesting things that happens to them is they say, you know, when I pray honestly, it doesn't feel reverent. I was like, that is such a fascinating instinct, because the opposite of honesty is dishonesty, <laughs> not reverence, right? Yeah. And and the fact that we all do, though, I mean, if those, are particularly, I mean, your students, my students, those who grew up in the church, we've we've kind of absorbed not scripture on this. We've absorbed a culture that tells us this is what dad wants to hear. Yes. <laughs> this is what this is what talking to father looks like. Mm-hmm. And then you you pray the Psalms and you think, I can't pray that. God doesn't want to hear this. But David it, was divinely inspired. He's allowed yeah, that's to be right. frustrated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's so funny when I teach, when I push my students to pray the Psalms, everyone, every Christian I know that has ever prayed the Psalms has the same experience. I can't pray this. And we're surprised, I think, that God not only wants to handle the truth, but can handle the truth. And it, it really points out some of what we need to unlearn is that God will only receive us if we first fix ourselves and make ourselves receivable. And when prayer is shaped by the gospel, <laughs> we, we come to the cross and we're embraced with all that, that we are and only what we can bring, which is ourselves. And too, too many Christians leave the cross when they pray, and they, they, they try to pray out of their goodness. And it's it, as um, Herbert McCabe argues, he he makes a, he has a great comment about prayer where he says, you know, at no point when my children tell me what they want for Christmas, do their minds wander. Or when the Titanic was sinking, at, at no point did, did someone have a hard time praying. <laughs> and he said, because you finally were praying the deepest desires of your heart. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you don't pray those, you know, you'll never bother praying. And I think for many of us, prayer goes to die because we're not actually bringing in with us the very things our hearts desire. We're praying for the kinds of things we think a good Christian would want to pray about. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out that doesn't tend to be us. Yeah, <laughs> and so right. we fail, uh, surprisingly. And, and so one of the things that, um, to give a really practical example of that, if you're praying and you realize your mind's wandering, maybe that's precisely what you should pray about. Lord, look at my mind is turning to the fact that the Lakers are trash this year and they should be better than they are. And what is Russell Westbrook doing? Why is he here? And why is he here? Why is he shooting threes? I don't care how open you are, Russell, stop it. And it, when my heart turns to that, the Lord is showing me what the treasures of my heart are. And, and I need to pray about that. I need to actually bring these things to the Lord. Or if I realize when I'm praying, wow, I don't want to pray. I need to tell God that. And I can't allow this weird sense I have that says, I'm going to surprise God. You know, God's going to be like, what? (laughs) How dare you? You know, and I actually need to be known in truth and seen in truth. And the Lord already does know me and see me in truth. I actually have to embrace the reality of that when I come before him.
0: Yeah, I think that's a helpful framing that you do uh, several times in the book is, Uh, you mentioned a little bit too you're entering into a reality about who you are about who god is uh, and you use the lord's prayer as kind of a way to form that uh to, to formulate that and that's where um you know i'm still working through this as somebody who's teaching this um so this is helpful for me as well but I always try to tell them that, you know, the Lord's prayer is a prayer of expectation, not a prayer right. of sort of, he's a genie in a bottle that you're trying to manipulate and get things <laughs> from him, you know, yeah. and like no Christian want, no Christian would actually say like, oh yeah, I think God's a genie in a bottle. Nobody says that, but obviously that's mm-hmm. the way we approach it. Right. So talk through that idea a little bit more. I think that's really helpful of entering into the reality of who we are and who God is in prayer. Cause I think that's a really helpful kind of foundation for it. Part of this is the instinct
1: I got actually from the Puritans who really sat with Colossians 4.2, you know, when you were praying, be watchful. And to be watchful is we need to really attend to our, to our impulses, to our, our, our mind wandering, to our anxieties, to our emotional life, like there's all sorts of things that we need to be watchful of ourselves so that we can actually present ourselves in truth rather than self-deception. I mean, the Puritans in particular were really attuned to how self-deceptive we are as creatures. And one of the ways that shows up with the Lord's Prayer, for instance, and the Psalms would be similar, but the Lord's Prayer uniquely, I think, is the language we use in the books, the Lord's Prayer is meant to condition your prayers. And so as we pray the Lord's Prayer, that, that, that's kind of almost this kind of tune we're to harmonize with. And it's kind of in the backdrop of our imaginations and, and we need to feel all the ways that we are drawn near to God in that, but also all the ways we're very uncomfortable with it. Like for John and I, when we were writing this, it, it became clear for both of us, we, we actually try to change parts of the Lord's Prayer that we don't like. You know, we really don't like, you know, forgive us our sins as we have for forgiven those who sin against us. We, we want to flip that. Right? We want to say, God, forgive me abundantly. And help me as I try to kind of forgive these people who are the worst. (laughs) We don't want to pray what it says. But as we pray that we feel the kind of tension now in in the forgiveness we want to embrace and the way we pray. And one of the places this really shows up, if you're watchful in prayer, be really particularly watchful of your intercession. You know, as you intercede, I, I remember I was interceding for a friend of mine. And all along the way, there were these little, like, you know, be with him. He's made some big mistakes. And then there's like little sidebars, which he wouldn't have made if he listened to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or maybe there's like, you know, you know, there's envy that seeps into my prayer or there's lack of forgiveness and frustration. There's, you know, when we intercede, we can often treat prayer like it is a magical formula, Mm -hmm. like we can just kind of come into prayer, kind of get a favor and leave and we fail to be watchful of the fact that our relationship with that person actually shows up in prayer. And it actually is revealing all sorts of brokenness about how I'm relating to them, how I'm relating them in light of God, how I'm relating to God in light of them. Like there's all sorts of dynamics there. Prayer is, is in my estimation, the Christian life in miniature. Hmm. And so if you're watchful in prayer, you'll, you'll begin to see very clearly the kind of universal temptations in the Christian life you have. And I think much of prayer is the Lord actually (laughs) illuminating all the ways that we're not with him. We're trying to manipulate him, Mm -hmm. that we don't show up, but we're projecting a false self at him. We, you know, all sorts of things that go on in prayer. And that, that should kind of reverberate through the whole of your Christian life. And you begin to see, oh my goodness, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself in my prayer life. And that's showing up in my Christian life.
0: That's really that's a really insightful i think that sort of uh you know they always say the things like it's hard to hate somebody if you're praying for them yeah. <laughs> and there is something too like oh yeah i don't pray for that person because i hate them so much or mm. or i don't uh pray for the lost because at the end of the day my day-to-day i don't really care if people mm. get saved or not you know if, I, if i'm really thinking deeply totally. about it you know so even in our small group at church recently we've been praying for you know the same people who are lost in our lives you know family mm. members neighbors etc And I got to thinking about that. I was like, I don't pray for these people that much. Like I recognize that they need to know Jesus, but it's not a regular part of my prayer. And that was a, that was a clear indication of what you're saying there of like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it's because I actually don't care about that as much as I should.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, and I, I think prayer, prayer becomes a place where we kind of loft up things we've already worked through. And perhaps we haven't really attended deeply enough to how prayer is actually the time to bring the truth of ourselves to God. Mm. And I think Psalm 139 is a really interesting modeling of that, where you have the psalmist who's very uncomfortable with God. You know, I can't hide from you, even in shale, if I went that you'd be there I'm in my mother's womb. Like we love those passages, but we don't really attend to like, that's like uncomfortability. Like God, you're everywhere. I can't hide from you. Then it just seems to explode in rage. Although I find most, most of my students, and this is true of me, like I love that psalm, but I always skipped over that part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I memorized it and literally just excised that part out of it. When that is what the psalm is, this, the, the psalmist is, is furious. And then, after kind of unleashing his rage at God, or not at him, but like in his presence about his enemies, he then says, and only then says, you know, search me see if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. He's kind of, he's kind of bringing himself. And, you know, that prayer really guided me in a season where I went through this weird experience where uh, for whatever reason, I was kind of guilty by association with people I wasn't associated with. <laughs> and these people very publicly attacked me and a whole conference had to move. There's all sorts of kind of crazy things that happened. And there was a very public kind of attack of me for holding views I don't hold and I don't believe. And I immediately experienced anger. But then I decided I'm going to pray and I'm going to really enter into prayer about this. And I I, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I am so angry. I am so frustrated. And it was so interesting because there was a one person in particular who was publicly accusing me of things that were all false and didn't care to find out if they're true or not but through the prayer i went from like i want i want this person to be publicly kind of humiliated and was, by the end of the prayer i was praying for them thinking lord i don't know why they need me to be evil hmm. i don't know why they need to lie about me lord i trust that you're at work and this is not for, i don't it's not my job to fix this it's not my job to go around and and convince people i'm not something they say lord i'm yours and you know typically I would have turned and just stewed in that anger and frustration. And then I either would have, I don't, if I was even aware of it, said, God, I'm sorry for being angry. You know, I, maybe I apologize after the fact, instead of actually coming into prayer angry, I would think that what God wants me to do is fix it. Even though he said, without me, you could do nothing. What he really meant was, (laughs) you know, fix your sin and then come to me cleaned up. Um, I would have fixed it. Or probably I just would have worked through it and ignored it. And There was an inability to kind of bring the truth the way I've we don't talk this way in the book, but the way I've come to talk since the book is I've begun to wonder how many of us forget that we're meant to pray in Jesus's name and not our own. Hmm. And that's that when we struggle to speak the truth in prayer, especially uncomfortable things like anger, we have to pause and consider, have we stopped praying in Jesus's name and started praying in our own? And have we come to believe that what invites me into His presence is somehow my ability to act Christianly mm-hmm. and to to kind of do certain sorts of Christian things, rather than coming in His name and and to pray in Jesus' name means more presumably than just ending
0: it in the name of Jesus. You know, maybe it
1: means that too, but it means something about how I actually
0: show up in prayer. Yeah, And I think you know you brought up Romans eight as well about the Spirit. You know, what do you what do you do with that passage? You know, there's the there's the sort of you know, I kind of default to saying something like, "Like your prayers don't have to be perfect. Your prayers not to be the way that they're supposed to be, uh, or the way you think they're supposed to be. Because even if you don't do it, guess what? God knows that you can't do it perfectly, and the Spirit does it on your behalf. You know, that's part of His intercession. Um, surely, there's more to it than that. But that's kind of the way that I've I've thought through it. So, how do, how do you think through that? Um, you can correct that what I said or not, but that, that's kind of the, the, the way that I take it. But
1: no, I I actually think something like that's right. Like I think one of the things it should do is it should allow us to take a deep breath and think. To be heard, it's not performative. Yeah, you know, so it decenters that. I, I actually I make an argument on this in a couple of places, but on a popular side, the book *Beloved Dust*, Jamin and I I argue that there is a kind of evangelical version of wordless prayer, but it's it's when we rest upon the prayers of the Son and the Spirit, kind of for us, through us, and from within us. And so there's a way where we come to embrace God's kind of praying for us, and just and so it's not. In, in one sense to not use words, it isn't technically wordless because it is it is an embodiment of one word, which is amen. And it's just embracing that. The, the other thing I think it does is, as I kind of noted earlier, it should lead us to consider if the spirit has descended into the kind of core of our person groaning with groanings too deep for words, that means the spirit has entered into the depths of our depravity and groans in reality and our worded prayer should harmonize with the truth and so we need to name the truth whatever that truth is you know if the truth is god i'm totally uninterested in being a christian today we need to name that now we don't just name that and move on Mm -hmm. but that naming is a way of offering ourselves to god and saying lord have mercy on me here I think prayer needs to be the place where we where we discover help where where we actually need it, mm-hmm. which is in the truth. And I think for way too many folks, the reason we don't give ourselves to prayer is prayer has become a place to pretend we're something we're not, and that's just prayer can't survive in a place like ex- that.
0: Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, that's right, and
1: it's boring. Quite honestly, yeah. it's just not right. interesting. Like,
0: yeah, oh. you know, one of the things that one of the big questions that comes up, and you talk a lot in here about. Uh, Motivation about conditioning, about expectation, and these kind of things. You know, I had a conversation with somebody really close to me recently about that tension, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you see in scripture where God, where Jesus is like, on the one hand, hey, you can throw that mountain into the sea if you, if you know, if you have enough faith. It's like, now we obviously all know that more than likely, uh, you don't have a strong enough prayer to literally throw a mountain into the sea. Um, But there's something to Jesus is trying to tell us, like, this is the power that faith has, this is what mm-hmm. the Father can do. On the other hand, there's all, you know, there's all the warnings about, and all the realities about the fact that you may pray uh, as hard as you ever prayed and have as much faith as you've ever f- done all the things that Strobel and Cosa you should do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your, your spouse still dies from cancer. So oh, what boy. are some some ways that you think through that, both theologically and practically, in terms of that tension that we that we live in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I think we struggle with, and this is, this goes to the heart of a lot of the, the theology I do, um, and there's others obviously doing this too. Um, I think Mike Allen is, is on this track these days that, in some really exciting ways. Yeah. But I think we have struggled to recognize how the Christian life is developmental. As, as evangelicals who, with a background of kind of biblicism, what we tend to do is say, this is what is good, this is what is bad. You know, you see this all the time. You see this all the time with fear of God. This is the good kind of fear of God. This is the wrong kind of fear of God. Mm. You shouldn't be afraid of God. It should be filial fear. And I look at that and say, this is just nonsense. Like it, <laughs> this is not, a, now, on one sense, it's true. Like we could talk about it far, far enough, but that just doesn't help anyone. Like it's so pastorally insignificant. Mm. The reality is, is fear of God's developmental. Yeah. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that means being afraid. I don't know how you could ever have a view of a fear of God that doesn't include being afraid, Sinai, Job, all sorts of things show us that we should be trembling in the presence of God. But then we realize that God is perfect love and perfect love casts out fear. So now I can't just say, Oh, wait, oh, wait, what's the good kind of fear of God? Okay, I'm gonna to try to, I'm gonna to try to have that. That's, that's how it works. Hmm. Any more than an infant can't try hard to be an adult. I have to find myself afraid of perfect love, and I have to be confronted not with the idea, but perfect love himself, and that now needs to kind of form my soul developmentally, so I fear him as a child fears a father. Well, and yeah, maybe it looks like awe eventually, but no amount of me trying to have awe will do that. Because it's rejecting the developmental reality of it. Hmm. See, Paul, when Paul looks at his people and thinks, you know, I I wanted to give you solid food, I can't. I have to give you milk. One, he recognizes he actually can tell that there's maturity and immaturity, but then he gives them milk. (laughs) He doesn't just tell them, here's what, you know, here's what solid food looks like. What's wrong with you? He actually developmentally addresses them. And so when it comes to things like prayer, I want to say, look, there, there is that, you know, we have to go on the actual path. And the actual path is offering yourself to the Lord. It is drawing near, and it's drawing near in truth. What we tend to do is we tend to say, you know, powerful prayer will look like this, therefore you should pray this way. And I think, you know, what we end up doing is we end up trying to generate prayer that is beyond our maturation. And we we actually end up closing ourselves down to the truth. And therefore, we play in pray in fantasy, trying to generate something powerful, rather than actually discovering, um, and this goes back a little bit to the way of the dragon, way of the lamb, that this is the path of power and weakness. And we will come to pray and develop in prayer. As those who embrace the truth and who come to humbly proclaim, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. And that's something that we can't just memorize. We actually have to enter into that. And prayer becomes a place where we come to be able to say that, I think, truly. And so I, I really wanna think developmentally about this, but also I wanna talk about that the path is a path of honesty. There is no other path. And what you see in the Gospels, I think, with the disciples is that path. What you see with Peter's that path, what Paul goes through. I mean, I think we, we, we actually end up recognizing this along the way. And it, it is never a mechanistic performative thing. If you say the words in the right way, then this will happen. It is always a drawing near to the Lord in truth.
0: Yeah. So it's funny you brought up the, the fantasy uh, thing I had uh, opened up to 178. I was going to read this. This was my favorite, probably my favorite thing that I read mm-hmm. in here. because you talked about this a lot. So I'm going to read just a little excerpt from the book. So you can uh, hear your own words or maybe uh, John Coe's words or maybe a, a combination <laughs> of two. But I thought this was really helpful. I underlined, starred, and was like, I need to put this on my mirror or something. You said, we need to intend to be with God in reality. The problem with our fantasy lives before God is that fantasy can often feel like what God is calling us to. In our deepest places, we fear that God does not want us as we really are. So instead of drawing near to him, we send our Christian avatar to pray. And you, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Our avatar looks the part of a good Christian, but it's not who we truly are. In doing so, we falsely assume God wants us to mine our own internal resources to fix our lives and grow ourselves and only then come to him. But this is self-help, a type of fantasy, and not the life of grace. Fantasy, however, is deceptive, and we can fail to see it clearly. Fantasy, I think this is really key. Fantasy is anything we turn to outside of Christ to ground our value our identity, and our goodness. Fantasy is our fleshly strategy not to live in the truth. I think we all default to that, perhaps, uh, you know, in different ways. Me as a a pastor and uh, performer, pastor, and professor, I'm always uh, thinking about it theologically, and I already know all the right things to say, and I know exactly what I would say (laughs) to somebody who were sitting across from me struggling with Mm -hmm. prayer, and I know how I lecture about it, and I create my own avatar of this Mm -hmm. kind of put-together, theologically astute person and you've got others who maybe are going through deep suffering and they're just kind of pretending like they're not really that worried about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul wants suffering. Christ said suffering. We get to suffer. So you're living in a fantasy world. You're thinking these things as a Christian that are not true. Uh, what would be a couple of things you'd say to somebody who, you know, sitting across from you in the office and are sort of giving you all the Christian, uh, you know, phrases and words that you're supposed to say? What would be some, some advice you would give in prayer and living out of the fantasy?
1: Well, I I mean, the, the refrain of the book is prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Mm. And I I would constantly push them along those lines and, and highlight that, you know, for you and I, and for probably a lot of listeners, one of the greatest temptations we have is that, and I think maybe this is true for women too, but I see it all the time with men in the church. Men tend to be thrust into leadership well beyond their maturity. And the it, that's devastating what that does to a soul, because almost inevitably we begin to think that we ha- if we just act like what we think a holy Christian would be like, mm-hmm. that one day just poof, you know that's going to happen. And I I think if you look at all those folks who have lost their ministries, who have failed, who have um, you know for one reason or another, whether it's toxic, whether it's sexual, whether it's you know. Um, the, how they use their words and abusive ways and things. You know, none of them got into ministry nefarious with nefarious reasons. i right? like, I don't think any of these people are like, you know, what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in here and warp the church. I'm going to go. You know, right. they all want at some point. They all felt called, but all of them embraced something that led them well beyond their maturity. And at some point, they they believed what people saw was the truth of them yeah. and they allowed themselves to live into this fantasy instead of giving themselves to reality and my encouragement would be you know this is actually really good news it's good news that his powers made perfect in your weakness it's good news you don't have to you know that the christian life is not performative primarily the prayer is not performed like it is good news if you don't hear it at good news as good news that's tragic because yeah. You know, you've just really missed the fact that the Lord wants to meet you in reality and wants to actually minister to you where you need healing. And I think for for too many folks, they are living under a burden that they can't bear, and mm-hmm. and they they've, they they kind of say all the right things. They want to say the Lord's dealt with it, the Lord's forgiven me, but many just haven't actually found forgiveness before the Lord because they haven't actually come before him with the truth. And so yeah. I would I would invite people to a freedom that they don't know and and a prayer life that is is rich because it's actually
0: getting to the deepest desires of their hearts. Yeah, that's good. Um, I have to say, before we go, you have been a true professional because I have had uh, two colleagues yelling outside my door, so I've had to leave you while you were talking. I've had my uh, automatic light sensor turn off twice, which never happens, and I finally got a lamp turned on. And all this time, you're man, you're just crushing it, just just giving the gospel. I mean, just uh, I think I put in the chat at one point, keep going. It's like. <laughs> So I appreciate you uh, hanging with me. Nobody got to see that but you. But um, for- fortunately, uh, you're saying stuff better than me anyway. So nobody needs me to be here. But, uh, but yeah, you, I'm you just glad in, it wasn't a power outage. I saw the lights go out. And I was like, whoa. No, I, went, I went dark twice before I finally was like, I'm just turning a lamp on. So anyway, all right, Kyle. I appreciate you being on, man. Hey, Brian, it's so good being with you, brother.